Well, that lovely license-free music tells us it's time once again for another edition of Small Business Weekly, your weekly antidote to the daily grind of running a business. I'm your host, Tom Ross, coming to you live from San Fernando, California. I got my coffee, my ice pack, and I'm ready to take another march down the pathway to success. So join me and my guest as we determine if limited liability corporations are really something we need to think about. It's time once again for Small Business Weekly. So you still hear me? I can hear you. All right, all right. Well, that, my friend, is the voice of Michael Overing, my guest today on Small Business Weekly. Mike, I want to say thanks for making the effort today. I know it's not always easy to Skype around, but... uh, I really appreciate it, and I know my my huge listening audience appreciates it, too. Welcome, Michael Overing. Well, thanks, Tom. Um, you mentioned a second ago you want to talk about liability issues. Do you <laughs> want to talk about business forms? What do you want to talk about today? Well, you know, uh, first of all, I want to let people know who you are, because you are the legal genius that uh, I have aspired to be uh, my entire life, and uh uh, not only are you a, a certified public lawyer or whatever the designation is, um, you're also a, a teacher of law or some aspect of it. So before I butcher your uh, bio, why don't you uh, give us a little, uh, you know, run around of uh, who you are, how you got where you are and what you're doing? Sure, absolutely. So um, I've practiced law for the last 30 years. I practiced a bunch of that time in the city of San Fernando and its environs. I, uh, hang on, I got to stop on that. crickets. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and in addition to, uh, well, let me, let me just say this and in, in practicing law, we represent a lot of small businesses. We represent a lot of individuals. We represent uh, a lot of families when it comes to issues surrounding business and what they're doing and their succession planning. Um, we represent uh, business and their negotiations with, uh, uh, landlords, tenants, uh, cities, whatever it takes in order to keep them up and running. And in addition to that, I also teach down at USC. Um, I teach intellectual property rights to graduate students. I teach uh, digital social media, everything from beginning a business online to keeping it up and running to shutting it down when the time comes. And we do everything in between. And uh, it's been a great career, a lot of fun. Uh, getting to know the small business community is a big part of what we do. And cool. uh, yeah, we're here to talk about liability. Let's talk about it. Well, I, I uh, in preparing for this, I, I spent, you know, a good six or eight minutes. And um, as I was going through, uh, you know, issues that small businesses uh, may need a lawyer for, uh, it was funny because a lot of people are like, you should be consulting a lawyer before you even start your business. And uh, I know 90% of people who are small business owners think the last person they'll ever need to talk to is a lawyer. And, uh, you know, limited liability uh, corporations, uh, you know, employment law, trademark law, et cetera, are things that people think about after the fact. So maybe it might be good to understand why these are things to think about during or before, or you know what I mean. Uh, maybe you could give us a little background on uh, what's the advantage of being having a lawyer in your back pocket, so to speak. <laughs> All right, so let, let, let's let, let's go down this path for a second. And and most people view hiring a lawyer as a scary proposition. Yeah. Uh, first, they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to get a hold of one, and that's problematic. But second, they're afraid that it's going to cost a lot of money. And that's a legitimate concern. The way that this ought to go is that when you start thinking about creating a business or buying a business, um, the first person you ought to talk to probably is your lawyer. And if you don't have one, you need to be able to find one. And the easiest way to do that is to talk to your friends, other businesses, talk to your accountant and get a referral to a business lawyer. Oh, wait a second. Wait a second. Um, turn down your microphone or your speaker just a little bit. And uh, 
You said another thing. Talk to your accountant. Another thing people should have right at the beginning, you know, another professional that will shepherd you, so to speak. There, there are three people who are part of this team, Tom, and it's really important that they be able to work together. You need a lawyer, you need an accountant, and you need an insurance salesman. If you have those three things, you're going to be in pretty good shape. Uh, the issue is simply this. Your accountant is going to know people probably better than anybody else. They are dealing with the community. They are talking with, with individuals. They're talking with other business owners. They are really in the know, and they're the backbone of any community in terms of just knowledge and networking. Lawyers are going to be very good at being able to advise you about what your business ought to look like from a legal perspective. We can't make decisions for you about whether to hire Uncle Ernie. We can't make decisions about whether or not you should allow your son or daughter to work and use the photocopier. But we can tell you what it is when it comes down to what the legal structure looks like, and we can tell you how to put it together. And then the third part of this is the insurance agent, because the insurance agent is going to be able to get you the best deal for insurance for your business. And there's an insurance product out there for every type of business imaginable. Yeah. And it's interesting because I don't think people realize, you know, they think, well, I'm going to open a bakery because I, I make really great cakes and we're going to have a, this great business. I don't think people realize how much they're putting themselves out there and on the line, so to speak, when they start a business. And this is where the, you know, the tragic story of, uh, the the ex family out there who, you know, had this great business for 15 years and then suddenly were taken down because, you know, a guy tripped over the the sidewalk in front of their place or, uh, you know, got a, a hair in his in his cake or something. And and they don't understand the importance of insurance, the importance of filling out all their tax forms properly, the importance of having a an attorney structure their business so that they're not they can't take down their whole life, you know. You're, you're absolutely right. And a lot of our legal existence is tax existence. It's, it's all about making sure that we are complying with the tax uh, authority, uh, whether that's a business tax in the community or whether that's paying it to the franchise tax board, the EDD or the IRS. And a lot of people don't want to be having to figure that stuff out. So it's kind of like being an ostrich with your head in the sand. And one of the things that a lawyer is going to do is make it easier for you to comply, less likely that you get shut down, less likely that you pay too much tax. Yeah, yeah. And he can also assist with your, uh, with your CPA when it comes to issues like that. And I think another thing that people don't, uh, it's, it's employment law, like you said, where they're not thinking originally about hiring nine people, but suddenly they're there. And if they don't have all their ducks in a row, uh, yeah, you can hire, you know, uh, paychecks or one of those companies, but it's not, they're not really going to be in your corner if something happens. I wouldn't say anything bad about the big payroll companies because they, they do do a lot of good and they do it for a fair price. The, the, the bigger issue is, like you said, you suddenly grow. Um, you know, one day it's, it's you and, and your spouse working in the business. And the next thing you know, you've got five people. Yeah. And, and, and a year later, you're, you're at nine or 10. And every time you turn around, there's a different regulation depending upon the number of people that you employ. And in California, we have a Department of Labor. We do not have a Department of Employer. And <laughs> the whole thing is that we are attempting to protect workers. And rightly so. Workers shouldn't have to go to work and, and lose an arm or a leg, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and that happened in the 1960s. Um, before we had Cal-OSHA, these were major concerns that people were being injured. They were being exposed to, to chemicals that cause cancer or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, so having a Department of Labor in place is, it is a tax on resources, but it's not a bad thing because it means that there are going to be fewer people who get injured less likely that you're going to have a lawsuit. And if you do, it's probably going to pick, be picked up by workers' comp. Yeah. Um, 
So the regulations are, are there actually to make things a lot easier so that you can run your business without having to think about them. But what I wanted to say was, when we're in a situation where you're employing people, and the next thing you know, you're suddenly 10 people, 15 people, on your way to 50, mm -hmm. everything changes depending upon the number of employees that you have and what level of reporting is required. So, oh. you know, most people don't realize that if you get to 50 employees, you have to file injury reports with CalOSHA. Mm. Well, it's, it's required. You get to 50 people and you've got just more reporting, more obligations. And, uh, you know, we've got obligations now of, of providing health insurance. We've got obligations in terms of making sure that the workers' compensation insurance is in place. Uh, the last thing you want to do is be uh, in a, an employer who has an injured worker without uh, workers' comp. Right. Um, and uh, AB5 just got passed. And AB5 takes effect now that says basically you can't have independent contractors in California. Oh, and yeah. this follows the Dynamax decision from about 18 months ago. And basically it says that if you're directing the person as to what to do, they're not truly an independent contractor. They are in fact uh, an employee. And if they're an employee, you need to provide the normal workplace benefits. You need to withhold social security. You need to uh, provide uh, state disability insurance. You need to make sure that you're doing all of the withholdings and doing all of the reporting uh, both to the state and to the IRS. So could we uh, segue into the opinion side of the show and uh, AB5, we can go down that rabbit hole a little bit because there's been a lot of controversy about that. And uh, I sit on the government affairs committee for the United Chambers of Commerce here in the Valley, the San Fernando Valley, for those of you out of state listening to our show on Skype. Thank you. Plug, plug. Um, and they, uh, they're very uh, tenuous about this, if I could say that, because they're not. It's such a controversial issue because it's been so heavy-handed. Now, the question is: Has the legislature modified the original uh, AB five uh, before, during, or after it passed to sort of relax it a little bit? Because a lot of people were saying these new sort of gig economy jobs would be just, you know, wiped off the map because you can't have a job with Uber and Lyft because you can only be an employee of one uh, if you're working, you know, 20 hours for one and 20 hours for the other. Who pays your benefits, you know? So uh, has there been any change to that or is it still sort of somewhat controversial? Well, it's, it's, it's going to remain controversial for a long time. The, the issue is whether or not the California rules that are a whole lot more explicit and are, in fact, going to uh, you know, basically take over from where the IRS the, uh, used to distinguish between an independent contractor and an employee and tell you that it's going to be an employee. Um, the answer to your question about being a co-employee between Uber and Lyft or, or two other organizations is that, yeah, both are going to withhold burden from wages. Mm. Uh, both are going to, going to require it. And if they don't, um, you're going to see a class action lawsuit because workers will not have been protected. And I think that the answer to this is it's going to take some litigation with the state but I don't see this going away, Tom. Wow. Uh, I think that for a long time, our government has seen the idea of an independent contractor as, as an untruth, that we really do not have independent contractors. We have people who are working and they're getting paid and nobody's paying the burden on the wages. Sure. And sure. I think that that's where our legislature came down on this. Yeah, I mean, I think in the case of a, let's say, a construction company who has, uh, let's say, 100 workers who might be, uh, you know, framers on a housing tract, uh, those framers are going to work every day. They're going to, at the direction of their contractor, they're, they're employees for all intents and purposes. But uh, 
I could see where a guy who was doing a website might not be. He's a contract employee and he works for a period of time and then possibly disappears unless he provides a contract to the company to maintain it. But he's not an employee of that company because he might have 19 other companies that he maintains these sites for. So uh, it's, I think there's, there's some, uh, you know, some hairs that have to be split. Well, I won't disagree with you. The the issue on your example with a, a website developer is that the website developer has to take uh, advice direction from the owner of the business. Uh, and that direction, though, is not about the, the, the tools to use, um, you know, and it's not about what the the code is behind the scenes that you're employing in order to get the website up. Whereas if it's a contractor and I tell you to go nail that two by four, I am directing exactly what you do. Now, if I'm in the business of website design and I hire you to do one website for me, might be a different story. Mm -hmm. And a big part of this too is whether or not the website uh, designer is, you know, doing this for other people, doing it independently advertising it as in stand-up and only business, you know, sure. Mm-hmm. But we really need to go back to where all of this started coming to light, which is uh, nannies, right? Nannies. You're a nanny to take care of your children. Oh. And that nanny doesn't have insurance. That nanny doesn't have uh, income tax withheld. That nanny isn't being protected according to the law. And that's where this is coming. Mm-hmm. Um you know, you've got a lot of house cleaners, you've got a lot of gardeners, you've got a lot of people who are just falling below the threshold level and not having basic benefits provided to them. Mm-hmm. And our government decided that this is a way that they could get at that. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, uh, you say nanny and I go back to what's that television show with that butler guy who, uh, you know, took care of the kids and. Uh, you, you know, there was always this sort of butler or nanny. Look at the uh, the Brady Bunch and and uh, what was her name? The, the Alice. Ma- Alice. So are we basically saying that you know Alice was a indentured servant and because she didn't have benefits and the the Brady family didn't pay her you know insurance and her pension. Uh, well, I think that. I think that's exactly the issue. It's it's there are are a lot of people who work their lives and they don't have social security and therefore can't retire. And at a time when let's 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 go back 100 years uh, at a time when Alice got old, the family, a family would take care of her. Um, You know, you fast forward to 2020. And we see a lot of erosion of the family unit such that they're not going to take care of Alice. Alice is going to become a ward of the state. And suddenly the state's saying, well, wait a minute, you're pushing that off on us. And that's a tax to us. You ought to be pushing that tax back to the people who benefited while she was working. Yeah. I mean, in, uh, in the case of the Brady Bunch, you know, Alice always talked about her husband and her husband worked. And so the assumption was that, she was doing this job as extra. I don't remember her husband, Tom. I thought she was always after <laughs> Sam the Butcher. Oh, <laughs> i sure that was Alice or was that another show? <laughs> Did that show start with a pizza delivery man or a, a, a cable installer? Oh, sorry. Uh, anyway, we're, we're getting off topic, but it's very interesting to note how the nature of work uh, that sounds like a book title, how the nature of work is changing and how the expectations of business to support their employees is changing underneath the noses of the people who are already working. So uh, it, it's, so it emphasizes the value of having your, your sort of uh, holy trinity of, of assistance, the lawyer, the CPA, the insurance guy, to help you through these things and understand the expectations and where you're going and how much of your income is going to have to go towards uh, these support services so that you can budget for that 
and grow into it as opposed to uh, let it knuckle you down, so to speak? There are an awful lot of businesses out there that are operating uh, without doing appropriate withholding, without uh, doing appropriate payments to the Franchise Tax Board, IRS, and EDD. And yes, a lot of them get away with it. Um, but the fact of the matter is, it is illegal. And if you get caught, the penalties are severe. And some people believe that if you just simply incorporate, well, it's the business, it's the corporation that is going to get into trouble. It's not going to be me and I'm not going to have to answer for it. And that's just not true. Mm. Um, the government is going to require that there be a responsible party. And if you were the president of this corporation and you're not making the required payments when due, what happens is, is that they hold you responsible and you are going to be um, you can be prosecuted both civilly and criminally if you don't take these responsibilities seriously. Yeah, I think as a business starts, uh, they can avoid some of these responsibilities, but you can't go into the business blindly. You have to understand that if my beautiful vision for this wonderful thing I'm creating actually is going to be viable, I will, I'm going to want to protect it. I'm going to want to sustain it. And I'm going to want to make sure that uh, I have no troubles. And uh, having that team together is what's going to uh, make that work. It, you're right. And let me, let me interrupt and say this. A lot of people do not understand that there are local taxing authorities on top of the state and on top of the feds. And it depends upon the community that you're in. Uh, as to how that tax is imposed and collected. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about uh, the city of Los Angeles for a second, mm -hmm. because the city of Los Angeles has a gross income tax. And the gross income tax is really harsh on a business that lives on margin. I could have $40 million worth of sales, but if my income is actually 1% of sales, that's my margin. Mm -hmm. But I am paying income tax to the city of Los Angeles on the gross sales. And, and that's really quite high. But if I go over to, say, the city of Pasadena, um, I am paying a business license fee, not based upon my gross sales, my gross income. I'm paying my business license fee based upon the number of people that I employ and the type of person I employ. Mm -hmm. And it costs more for me to employ a professional than it does say uh, a secretary or something like that, or a laborer, all right? Go to someplace like Glendale, and it's just a flat business license fee, and it doesn't change. And you can start seeing that there are places where you ought to have your businesses located because it's going to be cheaper for you if you fall into one of these categories. So it really does matter, and you really need to take a look at it. Yeah, it that. has to be part of that calculation of where you're going. Exactly. And, and a lot of people don't realize that there is an obligation to register your business and make these payments. And, uh, but if they catch you, you're going to pay a fine and you're going to pay a penalty for having not done it to begin with. Uh, talk for a minute about the, let's say I'm located in the city of San Fernando and I have a business license in the city of San Fernando. That's where my my base of operation is, that's where I pay rent, that's where my employees go every morning. So this is my, my business is in town. But my clients might be uh, scattered around the Southern California region. Uh, what are the requirements of having a business license in another town other than the town that you're located in? If you are doing a substantial part of your business in another city, then you're required to have a license in that city. So let's say that I'm a business in San Fernando mm -hmm. and San Fernando has a gross income tax. So I'm going to get taxed on every sale I make in, in the city of San Fernando. Am I going to get taxed on the city, uh, on the money that I make in the city of, of Santa Clarita? The answer to that is no, I don't have to report that to the city of San Fernando as part of my income in San Fernando. However, the test really is, where did I do the work? So if I'm a jobber and I leave San Fernando to go up to Santa Clarita and I'm doing the work at the client's installation, then that's truly not income from San Fernando. 
But if I'm only there for an hour and I come back to San Fernando, San Fernando would take the position that that is taxable to San Fernando. Hmm. Now, if I'm in Santa Clarita and I am doing the work, Santa Clarita is going to take the position that I need to have a license in Santa Clarita. Okay. Do people get the multiple licenses? Well, the answer is many do. Let me give you an example. You drive around and you see gardeners and you see a gardener with a permit stuck on the side of his truck. It's going to have a permit for every city that he's mowing lawns in. And the reason is, is because A, he's probably been down this path a time or two and the city code enforcement officer has come and told him he has to have a license. And B, he recognizes that it's far cheaper to get a license than it is to not do it and leave it to chance. I see. But the answer to your question is that you are supposed to have one. Mm-hmm. And every place where you do business, you're supposed to have a license. Is it enforced? Well, that's a good question. It depends upon the city. Some cities enforce it more than others. And they are more apt to police it more than others. And these questions are, are real significant. Because of the fact that, for example, the city of Los Angeles or the city of San Fernando has a gross income tax. They want that money. They need that money. You're making money off of their community. You're making money off of their using their roads and their services. And so they want to recover what they can. So let's. Sometimes when you have these discussions, it ends up sounding like. The minute I open a business, I just got this pile of fees that I've got. I just, why even bother? It's insane. The question would be, are there advantages of being associated through licensing and business license, et cetera, with these uh, various cities other than having to pay them for the privilege of being there? Uh, And I'm, this is sort of a rhetorical question, but, uh, uh, you know, I'm just curious. Do you have a, an opinion about that? Most of the time when you are doing business in a city, it opens doors for you to market to that city. You not only get to find out who the business community leaders are, you get to talk with the city council members who should be pro-business and doing things to promote your business to other residents. Um, you get to participate in town forums. You get to meet people in the Chamber of Commerce you get to participate in a way that you would not get to. What I find in Southern California is that most of us don't take advantage of those opportunities. What we do is we go into a community, we do the work, we leave the community and go home at night and we don't look back. And that's not the way that it would have been in 1963. And part of the reason it wasn't like that in 63 is we were a lot less mobile, we were a lot less uh, opportunistic in the sense of going someplace else in order to raise money, make money, sell services. Uh, We were a lot more tied to our local community because we knew our customers through our business contacts, through our social contacts, through our churches and synagogues. I mean, that's how you got business. Well, in 2020, we're far more mobile. We're much more likely to be in San Fernando one day and and Santa Clarita the next, and uh, and Encinitas the Encinitas the next day. Mm-hmm. It's just not the same as it was. Yeah. If you if you go back, even looking at the way that San Fernando was settled, a lot of the residents in San Fernando have left and now live in Camarillo. You know, it it, it the demographics change, the population is mobile. Um, you know, so as a consequence, people are in different communities and they travel a lot more than they did. Yeah, I mean, you could say that in, uh, like, we're using the 60s and 70s as an example, the, the, business, the business employee and owner population was largely from local residents. You know, people who lived in town worked in town. And you could say the same for the city council. Uh, obviously, they have to be, but the employees of the city to a large extent, were invested in the city because they lived there. But, Absolutely. And I would say that in that whole, that situation has been flipped on its head completely. A large portion of the businesses, even the small ones, are uh, not 
from town. You know, uh, my business, I'm in San Fernando. I'm in, I live in Silmar, so technically I'm close, but I'm not in the town. And uh, it's funny how that, that shift has taken place and what it does to the investment in, in a small community. It's not Mayberry anymore from the standpoint of uh, people living and walking and working in town and staying there. You're, you're absolutely right. And the other thing is that Amazon competes with every store in town. Target competes with every store in town. If you can't find what you wanted at Cooper's Hardware, you're going to go online and have it delivered to you and you're going to get it in two days with, with Prime. Mm -hmm. There's another aspect to this, and we're seeing a tremendous change in work based upon COVID. Yeah. And we're seeing that the number of businesses that are capable of surviving without having a workforce be present on a daily basis is enormous. Mm -hmm. And the effect of that is that we have a lot of people in the Bay Area in particular who are moving or living uh, 60, 70, 80 miles away from San Francisco, 100 miles away. You live in Modesto and you direct travel to San Francisco once a month because now you can Zoom, you can Skype, you can have go to meeting and you do not have to physically be there. What is that doing? Well, number one is it's revitalizing some of these urban areas, these, uh, uh, you know, the, the sprawl out into the desert. Number two is it's causing an incredible amount of housing that's becoming available in the city centers. And the third thing that it's doing is it's dropping the rental rates and the real property rates are going to follow. So we have seen in the last four months, um, and these are year over year statistics, but we've seen a drop of 15% in rental rates in downtown San Francisco uh, to a drop by 9% in Fremont and San Jose. Wow. So long-term, what does this mean? Well, people don't commute to a city center anymore. People don't come to work. They stay in their residential communities. That means that there is going to be a tremendous demand probably in about 18 to 24 months for a lot more local services. Because if I spent time in downtown San Francisco and I liked a particular delicatessen, I would really like to have one near me when I live in Modesto. And so there's going to be more opportunity for small business to grow in those urban, in the, you know, the suburb urban areas rather than in the downtown urban areas. Yeah. As usual, uh, the panic surrounding the, a dramatic change is offset a lot of times by the opportunity that opens up because of that change. The, the opportunity on both sides of the spectrum, for example, if you wanted to live in San Francisco, you, you may be able to afford it in 18 months, much more than you could 18 months ago. If you exactly. want to, if you want to work remotely, from home, which I don't even want to talk about how that uh, affects AB5, but <laughs> be that as it may, I'm working at home. I'm going to go for a coffee at noon. Uh, there better be a really nice coffee shop I can sit in and relax and maybe meet with the guy down the street who also works for at my company. Uh, let's meet, you know, at, at the deli. Uh, and I agree with you 100%. For example, we do some work in Lancaster. There's a deli up there. It's a, a traditional New York deli. And we go there almost every single time we go up there for, for work. Bring me some pastrami, will you? Oh, my gosh. It's amazing. They make their own potato chips right there. Oh. And uh, they're heavenly. And, and this is the thing is, I think, and one of the reasons I do this podcast, and one of the reasons I'm still involved in town, as crazy as it is, in in all these chamber and uh, uh, business organizations is you see the potential of what could be built and it drives you nuts. It's, it's just amazing what, what potential there is just in this little tiny area. And I, I'm really excited about what you just said, because it, it's something that you don't hear a lot about, you know, you hear a lot about how COVID's terrible. We're all going to die. Everybody should wear a mask. 
What are we going to do, etc.? But I'm encouraged by things like within two weeks of COVID, I saw one of the newest restaurants in town doing drive-through and you know uh, pickup immediately. Uh, and that's what I'm talking about. Someone who has that entrepreneurial spirit who says, "I'm not going to wait for the government to say it's okay. I'm just going to do this because I got a, I got a business to run here." And people are calling me, they want food, so I'm going to give them food. Obviously, they do everything safely, they do everything properly, but they're willing to try and and build upon that uh, tragedy, so to speak. We're going to have to readjust the things that we do. That's obvious. Uh, Movie theaters are going to be hit hard. Bars are going to be hit hard. Uh, Churches are going to be hit hard. The, the issue is that any place where you can't get away from, physically away from somebody else, um, provides an opportunity to think about how we can be together, but be apart. <laughs> and, you know, the concept of food delivery has been around uh, 30 years ago. There was food fetchers in downtown Los Angeles that provided delivery service for all of the downtown restaurants. And having that occur again with Uber Eats, um, you know, it works. There are a number of, of uh, alcoholic beverages that can be now delivered to your door. These things did not exist uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And so there truly is a lot of opportunity and a lot more opportunity for people who are interested in it. I want to say something about Uber and Lyft. Mm-hmm. I've got a number of friends who drive for them and they really like to drive. They like spending large amounts of time behind the wheel. I personally don't want to drive. And so I find the convenience not only to be nice because you can sit and relax while somebody else takes over, but you also get to hear their stories. And one of the things that they tell me about is how much more freedom that they have being out and about and being able to go and do that activity that they enjoy doing and get paid for it. Yeah. Um, What's surprising to me is why aren't there more companies out there doing the same thing? I mean, well, let me just address that. I think there is a perception that the the incumbent carriers, as we call it in my industry, are so big that there's no market for you, the little guy. So, for example, we're an internet service provider, and we're smack dab in the middle of spectrum and frontier territory. And we're still doing a fair business. But when I talk to other people who do what I do, they're in the Midwest. They're in the middle of Oklahoma servicing 200 square miles of of farmland. Well, there's no carriers up there for internet service. So they have a market that's almost exclusive. We kind of have to fight for our market, but the market is there. And it's, and it, to speak to what you said, there's no reason a small company couldn't start a, a delivery service for restaurants in a small town and do a great job of it and, and well, supplement, you know, Uber Eats or, or you know, that kind of company. I, I think that, the, you know, your example is a really good one. And in the middle of Oklahoma, your problem is that you do not have population density Bingo. to support building the infrastructure. And as we move forward with 5G, maybe things will get easier. I don't know. Um, But I always thought San Fernando being in this nice little, uh, you know, encircled by the 210, the 5, and the 118 is a great place to have a delivery hub. Mm -hmm. And that would be the ideal location to have a bunch of these delivery vans, a la UPS or, or, uh, DHL and do short deliveries where you're dealing with things inside the city limits or the county of Los Angeles. And what we really ought to be doing is out in Santa Clarita, we should build a big hub for the 18 wheelers to offload into the small delivery vehicles. And you send a whole bunch of traffic from San Fernando in small delivery vehicles, you load them up. We've got four freeways close, we've got another one with the 405 and the 14, and San Fernando is the ideal place to start sending out all of these small vehicles that a whole fleet of them would probably make a million dollars. Yeah, and I think 
the only one of the biggest hurdles to that is not necessarily the business itself, but buy-in from people who can't see the advantage of it. Uh, who, who, for as an example, and I, I had a couple of Zoom meetings at the beginning of the COVID with uh, small businesses in town, and um, the the question came up. You know, have you all applied for your uh, loan? Have you all applied for your PPP? Uh, and, you know, everybody's like, yes, yes, yes. And a couple of people were no. And the question was, why? And they said, well, you know, I looked at it and then we're a sole proprietorship, not a LLC or a company. And, and you know, and a lot of our employees are temporary and we didn't think and we didn't think. And uh, I was aghast. I was just like, get out there and, and apply. Let them tell you no. And so a lot of times you have these uh, these businesses who assume that this delivery service might not work for them, or it's too different. I don't want to do that. Or I've got Fred in the back. Why do I need this? So they're unwilling to change. And and I think that they're you're an entrepreneur for a reason. You've got to be willing to step out of the door every day and take a chance. You don't, your check is not guaranteed every day. So you've got to be able to walk into the office and say, hey, you know what? Maybe that is a good idea. Maybe I'll do that. And we need more of that spirit to come back to the small towns because businesses are just bashed by what they see on television. Amazon. I mean, you know how disheartening it must be if you're a retail outfit and you drive to work every day and you see six Amazon trucks on the way to work. I mean, that's got to be hard. That's got to be hard. But, but, you know, you raise another issue. There are a lot of people who are risk averse. They don't want to take a chance and they are afraid about putting their capital on the line in order to to uh, risk you know, making more money. And I understand that. Um, you know, my father was an engineer. I get it. OK, so the issue is this, though. There are a lot of resources that are available for somebody who is an entrepreneur to kind of minimize that risk. You raised a good one, which is you're in a, a number of, of business community uh, groups where you sit around and you talk about these issues mm -hmm. and you talk about the PPP and how to get that loan and why you should apply for it. And I think that a lot of people out there do not understand that these groups are very low cost and people are willing to share expertise and knowledge for nothing. Mm -hmm. And so <laughs> join Kiwanis, join the chamber. <laughs> Join Rotary. I mean, join the Association of Realtors. There are a lot of really fine groups of people who will share knowledge, expertise, and give you the 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 backup, the safety net, if you will, in order to do this. And I, I think that's, you know, well, it's, wonderful. It speaks to what you were saying earlier about the shift in work uh, location for not just information workers anymore. You know, would you call an insurance processor an information worker? I guess you would. Yeah. You know, but but you see, the difference would be that now instead of having a hundred employees all commuting to a place in you know Century City or Woodland Hills, you got fifty of those people working from home. Well, now they're in their local community. Can you afford to take a an hour and a half lunch with the local service club or once a month club meeting with the Chamber of Commerce and start getting involved like we used to be? If we're home, let's start being involved in our communities in a way that we haven't been in 30 years. And so the answer to your question, in part, I think, has to be top down. And I think that we need to have the small business that is located in Century City telling its workers who are 45 minutes away to do this, mm -hmm. to cut them some slack and let them do this. Yeah. But I, I think also the other part of this is these service organizations need to become more known. They need to market. They need to let all of the community know that there's an opportunity to get involved, be active and network. And those clubs, those organizations, 
the chamber needs to send out flyers, needs to post things that say, hey, we're not just for existing businesses, but we're for you who want to start a business. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that's important. It is important. And I think it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of a lost, um, I don't know. It's a, it's something like when you watch to, to say Mayberry one more time, when you watch that Andy Griffith show, you realize that's the way that we developed the small business uh, philosophy, ethos, whatever it might be in the United States, is that people wanted to be part of their community because they were invested in it. And we got kind of away from that in for, I don't want to say the millennials, but the last 20 years, it didn't matter. Technology is going to take care of me. I'm a member of the global community. I can see everybody, uh, but what really then in the end matters is who can you actually interact with? Who do you actually see? Who is at the Home Depot when you go there? Who is at the restaurant when you go there? They probably aren't the same people you saw on uh, Zoom this morning, but they're your neighbors. And they're the ones who are actually invested in your community financially. And so the, the community still is local and we have to sort of find it again. And uh, it's not easy. I mean, here I am doing a podcast that's available globally, but it still is a, a value add for those people who know that it exists through the Chamber of Commerce. I think that's right. And I, I think that the other part of this too is when you're working in Century City and you have gone and seen the same people and gone to lunch with the same people every day for the last three years, and now that is completely disrupted. Yeah. Um, we have to build routine again. And it's been real hard with restaurants shut down. We don't have these meeting places. Uh, two weeks ago, um, I was down in Oceanside and, and went over to uh, Carlsbad. And, and uh, you know, there, there's a, a, a great pub over there that was open and it was great to sit in a restaurant again. And you don't realize how much you miss going to a restaurant where there are other people. Yeah. Um, those are important things to do. But now that you're at home, you need to do them in your community, not in your work community. Yeah. Well, let me ask you something. And this is sort of a, an odd topic, but from a legal perspective, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe not. But what's interested me about the COVID situation is the sort of sudden conscious or unconscious shifting of the responsibility for my personal safety from me to other people and governments. And I don't know if that uh, matters or if that's always been there, but it's something that struck me as, wait a second, shouldn't, shouldn't it be up to me whether I uh, go out into the world and, and risk driving and and uh, working or is it now is it the expectation that from this point forward this will be something i uh, i expect my elected officials to deal with your libertarian nature is showing oh, in the sure. way that you frame the question i apologize <laughs> take so, the frame it however you like i, I didn't mean that <laughs> So, so the issue is, and, and I think that this question is one that we have been ramping up toward uh, since at least the 1950s, which is how much service should the government be providing and how much personal responsibility should there be? And we have moved from a, an economy, if you will, or a social economy of personal responsibility to one of governmental or social, uh, maybe not fully socialism the way that our president would describe it, but we are certainly moving into that model. And some of this is, is well and justified. Um, I feel strongly about the fact that if there's chemicals in my food or if there's chemicals in a product that is prone to you know, cause me a burn or cause my, my child to get sick, that government needs to step in and do something about that. On the other hand, um, 
I would dearly like to walk down the street without wearing a mask. And I feel very strongly that we don't have enough information about whether or not a mask is uh, reducing my risk or reducing my risk to spread whatever disease I'm carrying to others. And we certainly do not have a consensus on what it means for personal protection versus protection of others. Mm-hmm. I do not know how we clean a movie theater sufficiently. A movie theater has cloth seats yeah. and one seat right next to another, next to another. Do we move back to bench seating that's uh, oak boards that you can spray down with Lysol in between mm-hmm. showings? I don't know the answer to that. And who should be responsible for it? And I don't think we're going to get an answer to this for the next 18 to 36 months because our politicians don't know where they want to come out on it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of information that we don't have. We don't have it because our government doesn't know it. Our universities don't know it. And I also believe that there's an awful lot of information that was not provided to us, both beginning of COVID and during COVID. Mm-hmm. And some of that is going to affect the way that we behave toward each other for years to come. It has been really difficult from a legal perspective. Uh, when the courts are closed, oh, because what we do requires a courthouse. So much of what we do requires court hearings. And if you can't go into court, you can't work. And we can't move cases along. We can't do anything for a client if the courts aren't going to be open for business. Well, I feel bad for the bar owner. And if you can't go get a drink and you can't sell a drink, you can't make money and you can't make the payments on your mortgage. Can I risk opening and having a lot of people get sick? I don't think you can, Tom. I mean, look at what happened with the nursing homes. Yeah. And we know that there are a lot of, uh, that the elderly are particularly susceptible to this bug. Mm-hmm. And we know that once it gets introduced into a closed environment like that, not only are they going to get sick, they're not going to get well. And it's a matter of time before they die. And that's what we're seeing. So should we have stepped in earlier and closed down the nursing homes? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, hindsight, right? We're going to be two years out and we're going to say, oh, well, this is what we should have done on January 31. This is what we should have done on February 3. And we're going to know. But yeah. in the meantime, I think it's a guess. Well, yeah. And I think one of the issues you brought up just then was that there are certain things that are part of our uh, uh, constitutional right, for a, a lack of a better term, due process. And you just described the fact that due process has been delayed. Now, you could also make the case that due process was delayed before this just because of the volume and the courts being, you know, overrun as they are. So it's, you know, sometimes difficult to get a, 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 a you know, time in front of a judge but uh, now it's been mandated. You know, it's been literally shut down. So I would agree that, yes, from a liability standpoint, opening my restaurant is a difficult choice uh, for both the government and for me as a you know, bar or restaurant owner. But as someone who's awaiting a trial and they feel they're innocent, what about them? You know, are they being uh, pushed aside for the greater good, quote unquote? And and so those are the sort of issues I wish that uh, our representatives would deal with more rather than, uh, you know, whether or not this mask works, you know, or whether or not I should have another news conference to discuss whether or not the mask works. And so... It's it, it's just a difficult thing, and, and it's in the forefront of what we're all dealing with right now. I mean, this is why we're talking about changing. This imposed isolation is why the nature of work is shifting. Back in January, when we first, or I think it was February, when we first started talking about shutting down, it, it occurred to me that 
we're, we're going to get through this and everything's going to be great, but everything's going to be different. And I think that still is holding true that we're just, the fabric of how things are doing is, is molding. And maybe it's because we're in the 21st century and it should, but wow, I never expected this to be the catalyst, so to speak. Well, and is it as bad as we think it is, or is it worse, or is it, you know, I remember having conversations in January before we got shut down uh, about China, and the, com the, the question that I was asked was, is this really going to cause us to lose 25% of the Earth's population? And I guess the answer to that question is, it could. Um, is the government justified in doing what it did? Well, that's a legal question, and it's going to take a while for that to get sorted out because we're going to end up in court on that question for a long time. Yeah. How does the government justify allowing people to get together for a protest, but not allow people to get together for a church service? I mean, these are bad decisions that are being made at some level. Yeah. And they're going to have to get litigated and they're going to have to get decided. And in the meantime, you and I have to live with whatever happens. Um, yeah. Daily basis. Well, you know, I, I, as a, someone who is a, a eternal optimist and someone who is always looking at the, the possibilities, the potential, I believe we're going to come out on top, but it's going to be a, it's like being born. It hurts like hell, but afterwards it's going to be great. So it, it's, it's definitely a, a trauma. However, I would recommend for those who uh, are very patient and wonky, there's a great uh, documentary series on Amazon about the the bubonic plague. It's a 24 part lecture, so it's definitely a deep dive, <laughs> and it's not for everybody. However, it's fascinating to see the changes that took place in that 50-year period, in like the, the 1350s to 1400, of what actually happened and took place when half the world's population, give or take, died. And it puts into perspective the, the suffering, quote-unquote, that we're going through now. And it makes you realize, and it also, it, it shows you how the Enlightenment was launched out of this tragedy. So a lot of the principles we live by today came out of the uh, the the worst tragedy in in documented human history. So it's really fascinating to me, um, and and to to sort of juxtapose those two um, those two events, you know what we're going through now and what we went through then as a people. So <laughs> sorry to shut you up there. Well, you know, I mean, it could just be this is cosmic and we just have to live through it. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. But uh, um, on that note, if I, I may choose to cut out my bubonic plague part, but maybe not. Um, I, I want to say uh, this has been uh, fascinating and uh, very uh, helpful. I appreciate, I, I sort of enjoy the legal hopscotch and discussing you know, issues that uh, come up in business and how they can be uh, arbitrated and, and how the law works when it comes to businesses. And uh, I really appreciate your, your point of view and, and your helping us out here at this podcast. No, it's fun, Tom. And the other thing about it is that these are, these are real issues that affect real people. And, and we have to be cognizant about that. And if there are people in your audience who are thinking about becoming a business owner, they need to know that there are resources available to them at no cost. And, and going to a, a meeting of the chamber or calling an attorney for a consult, 818-361-1121, uh, <laughs> it's not a bad thing to do. Yes. Free plugs available at Small Business Weekly. Um, I, but see, you're right. And people need to not be afraid and they need to not assume that because I'm a successful business owner, I know everything. A successful business person knows where to find what they need. 
And it, it, and that's the skill. It's not being a great plumber or a great carpenter. It's being a great manager of the enterprise. And sometimes that means you have to call in experts. Yeah, exactly. When you have a problem you can't solve on your own, you need to call in an expert. Awesome. Well, uh, I'd like to say thank you, uh, Mr. Expert Legal uh, um, Lawyer, Mr. Michael Overing. Thank you so much for helping me out today. And uh, I wish you all the best. And the same to you, Tom. And I'd like to thank all of our listeners who have made it this far into the podcast. We really appreciate you listening to our show. And if you found any value in today's show, we'd appreciate it if you looked up SanFernando.com. Take a look at our Chamber of Commerce, see what we're up to. Uh, Like us on Spotify. Join our podcast. Subscribe if you can. And if you found any value in this, consider donating to the San Fernando Chamber of Commerce. We do a lot of great things for a lot of small businesses. And uh, we're doing our best to keep the engine of our community running. We'll see you all next time on Small Business Weekly. My name's Tom Ross.